You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. to meet you. Uh, my name is Anthony. I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. Uh, we would love for you to just stop in the lobby and meet one of our host team members. Uh, we have a spot up there just for first time guests. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Again, if this is your first, especially if this is your first time here worshiping uh, with us. If you have your Bible, please go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter five. If you have your Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, hopefully we were able to put one in the seat back in front of you or near you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you. We would love for you to own a Bible. Again, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. We just finished last week uh, our Warrior series, and next week we'll be starting another series uh, called uh, In Columbia As It Is in Heaven, where we'll look at the idea of how does, amen, amen. How, what do we want to see God do, and what does it look like for God to bring transformation in such a way that we begin to see Columbia look more and more like heaven every day? What type of transformation do we need to, do, 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 would God do, excuse me, for, in order for us to be able to see that happen? And oftentimes when we think about that, we think about how God changes the world around us, but specifically for that series we'll be starting next week, we'll be looking at, no, 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 what does God need to do and change in you in order for Columbia to begin looking more and more like heaven? So we're going to get into that. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Today, we're doing what we call a standalone sermon, where we're not in any specific series uh, but we're, we're still, we're kind of in between these two series. And the reason that we do that is because there are times, uh, as a pastor, I believe it is very important for me to understand where our church is uh, from a spiritual maturity standpoint on various topics and various issues regarding spiritual maturity and spiritual health and spiritual growth. During our standalone sermons, we get, I get the opportunity to speak directly into areas that I feel need to be spoken into. So sometimes when we do a series, we look at these big themes and we try to say, okay, from Genesis to Revelation, what does the Bible have to say about this theme? Or maybe we'll, we'll pick a book like we did 1 Corinthians at the beginning of the year and at the end of last year, and we'll just work our way through and we start with the question of, okay, what is the Bible saying and how do we apply that? With our standalone sermons, we start with, okay, what are issues in our church that we can grow in and what does the Bible have to say specifically about this issue? What does the Bible have to say specifically about these issues? What might we preach on to help our church grow in areas where we need to grow. Today, we'll be in a difficult topic, a topic that oftentimes makes people cringe, makes us angry, makes us uncomfortable. I just want to encourage us from, from the beginning to understand that we, we live under the authority of God's Word, right? When God's Word says something that we don't like, we don't, we're not, we don't push that aside and then do whatever we want to do. One of the founding fathers of this country, Thomas Jefferson, basically he took a Bible, took out all the stuff that he didn't like, and kept the stuff that he liked in it. He actually wasn't even a Christian. He just, he just like, I like these certain teachings of Jesus in these parts of the Bible, so I'm going to keep this, and that's how he governed his life. And many in our country still do that today. Maybe, maybe we don't you know, tear out the pages actually of the Bible, but there are certain parts that we don't want to deal with because of how that makes us feel. I just want to caution us today to not do that. Let's look at the word. Let's see what it says. Let's think about how do we apply this. If we disagree, we're wrong. God is right. Amen? Amen. That is how the church functions. That is how we as the body of Christ function. 
After conversing with uh, many leaders in our church, life group leaders, our Sunday uh, team leaders, I've realized more and more that our church, in our church, we don't have a, a proper appreciation for and a, and a proper embracing of the biblical concept of submission. We don't have an appropriate appreciation for, we don't value it the way that God would call us to oftentimes. And not just our church, I think our culture at large, uh, I will put in that same boat. It's much easier, it's much more comfortable for us to just do what we desire to do rather than coming under the authority of God or others that he has placed over us. So instead of embracing biblical submission, I'm, I'm going to try to make the argument that we actually do ourselves harm because we don't value submission the way that we are called to. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 15. The context here is Paul is talking about living as children of the light. He tells them to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness and that they are now light in the Lord. And then beginning in verse 15, he tells them some of what does it look like to live as children of the, of the light. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He tells them they need to understand the will of the Lord and live that out so that they don't walk in foolishness, but instead they walk in wisdom. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So instead of being drunk with alcohol and allowing that to fill your body and control you, be filled with the Holy Spirit that he might lead you and control you. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we just did, and we'll do a little bit later, he tells them to sing songs, make melody together to the Lord with their hearts. Extremely important. All these things that I've just named out are, are commonly understood to be Christian practice, right? Walking in wisdom, singing songs to one another, being filled with the Holy Spirit are things that we commonly associate with, with, with being children of the light, as Paul describes it right here, or described it a little bit earlier in the chapter, but verse 21 is one of those verses that might surprise you that it even made it into this list. Let's see what else Paul says as a part of being a child of light. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to make sure we understand what the, the Greek word there for submit is talking about. It means to be subordinate to to be subject to, to yield to, to submit to someone's counsel or admonition. When someone admonishes you, it means to be subject to. That word means to, to come underneath something, to, to see yourself as underneath something. He's saying put yourself under the leadership of one another. Now, the verse after this one is one that we, we're, many of us, I would say, at least are very familiar with, even though I don't think many of us are very familiar with uh, verse 21. Verse 22 is when it gets into and talks about wives to submit to their husbands. And obviously, that's a very controversial verse. But you've got to understand, even with that verse, it's in the context of Paul laying out that the church, we are to submit to one another. We are a people that submit to each other. And he expects us to do it out of reverence. For Christ, very important part at the end of that verse. Now, the Greek word there for reverence is a word that means fear. Many translations actually translate it fear. It's pronounced phobos, right? It has the same roots as the English word phobia. 
The New American Standard Bible actually says to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. God is saying here to the Apostle Paul that we are to submit to the family of God, submit to the people of God that he has placed us in because we reverence, because we fear him, is what he's saying. Fearing God is a very big theme in the Bible. Biblically, it's set in opposition to the fear of man. So there's a, there's a leader named Saul in the Old Testament, and, and there was this big decision, something that God had called him to do, but because he feared what the people would say if he did what God told him to do, he did whatever they wanted him to do. And so the Bible says that he sinned because he feared man. He was afraid of what the people would do, what the people would say, so he didn't do what God called him to do, so he feared man instead of fearing God. The one that you fear, the one that you reverence, is whosoever voice rings loudest in your mind while you make decisions. Whoever's thoughts, whoever's opinions, whoever's perspective is loudest in your mind as you decide what you're going to do, who you're going to follow, that's the one that you fear. The fear of God, then, is to have the thoughts, the views, the preferences, the perspective of God ring louder in our minds than anyone and anything else. It is to care more about what God says than what anyone else says. You maybe have heard somebody say, oh, I ain't worried about what they say. What they're saying is I, I don't reverence them. I don't, I don't fear them. Their words don't ring loudly with me. I'm not concerned with what they are saying. Paul is saying we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, before we get into this a little bit more, I got to ask, are you worried about what God has to say? Do, do you have to be able to understand why God is telling you to do something in order for you to obey it? Do you have to be able to reason through and understand how this makes sense before you can obey? If so, you don't fear God. You don't reverence him. You just, you just follow him when he agrees with you. You just follow him when he submits himself to, to your level of understanding and your perspective on things if you have to understand why he is telling you to do what he's telling you to do in order for you to follow him. To reverence, to fear God is to have what he says ring loudly in our minds more than anything else, more than our own thoughts, more than our own desires. Are you able to obey God's rules even when they make absolutely no sense to you? I hope you see a pattern in your life of God's voice progressively ringing louder and louder than anyone else's in your mind and in your heart. I hope you're worried about what God has to say, even when you don't understand why he says it. If we do not fear God, we don't reverence him, if we, don't, if we aren't willing and able to obey him, even when we don't understand why he would say this, then we see God more as a peer than someone that we should honor and reverence. We see him as on our level, right? Because that's how you interact with everybody else. If what they're saying makes sense to you, okay, then you do it. That's how you interact with a peer. The way you interact with a supervisor is they tell you what to do and you need to do it, right? The way you interact with a peer is if your reason makes sense to me, then I will do what you are saying to do. Do we fear? Do we reverence our God? So then the question I want to make sure I answer as clearly as I can. What does it mean for us then as Christians to submit to one another? What does that look like? I want to uh, come from some, some pictures that we have in the Bible. We don't have time to, 
to turn there. But in Galatians chapter 2, uh, Paul is defending his ministry to the churches in the area of Galatia. There have been some, some false teachers that have come in and tried to, try to talk down on Paul so the people wouldn't listen to him. And Paul lets them know, it's like, hey, this gospel that I am bringing to you, even though I received revelation specifically from Jesus, I saw his face, his Holy Spirit has, has shown me what to teach. Paul says I, he actually went to the other believers and submitted his preaching to them so that he would not be preaching in vain, so that he would know he wasn't preaching in vain. So this is Paul, most likely the greatest missionary other than Jesus himself to ever walk the earth. Most prolific writer in the New Testament said, I went to the leaders of the church, and I said, the, the word in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2 is, and I set before them the gospel that I have been preaching just so I know that I'm not preaching in vain. He submitted himself to the church, practicing submission to one another. Also in Acts chapter 13, before Paul is sent out, I believe on his first missionary journey, he's sitting there with the believers, the church, an established church that was there. They're worshiping God. They were fasting. And then the Holy Spirit communicated to the group and through the group that Paul and Barnabas were to be set aside and sent out to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And, and Paul was, he was there and he's like, okay, if you guys, if this is what God is saying to us and through us, then this is what I am going to do. He submitted himself to the church. Submitting to one another means allowing yourself to be governed by the counsel of others. Allow yourself to benefit from the wisdom of the community that God has put you in. Submitting to one another is not believing that you know everything. Submitting to one another means you understand that you have blind spots that you can't see and others can. So when others counsel you on it, you come with the humility that says, you know what? I need to listen well to this to see if you're right. Even though I do not see it, this is submission to one another. It's embracing the protection that comes from allowing yourself to be guided by the collective, by the group. It is to see the fact that God speaks through the fellowship of other believers and that that is a tremendous blessing in your life. Amen. I'm not saying you have to do everything that someone in the church tells you to do. But I am saying that something is off if you're the type of person that don't listen to nothing anybody tells you to do. If you're the type that no one can counsel, you're just hard-headed, right? You, you, you got to mess up first to learn, right? You're just one of those type of people that you got to go do something stupid before you can learn what's actually the right thing to do, no matter what people have told you. I'm saying that if you are in fellowship with the body of believers, you have people filled with the Spirit of God that are around you, that know you, and that God, the Holy Spirit, speaks through to instruct you. I believe Proverbs gives us some very good, some very honest, some very blunt wisdom on this. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So just so we're clear, the Bible says you're acting as a fool if you are the type that doesn't listen to advice because you think you're always right. Proverbs 15, 31 through 32 says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. It causes so many problems for us when we ignore instruction. So many problems that the Bible says that if you do not listen to the instruction of others, you despise yourself. 
that you are despising yourself when you don't listen to counsel, when you ignore instruction? Is your ear quick to listen to life-giving reproof? Now, reproof isn't advice. Reproof is a little bit different from advice. Advice can be, hey, this is something, I think you should do this. I think you should respond this way. That's not reproof. Reproof is when someone expresses disapproval for your decisions or for your thoughts. Reproof is when someone rebukes you or reprimands you. Reproof is when someone assigns blame to you and tells you that you're wrong. That's reproof. And this verse shows us that those that are wise listen to the reproof of others. Listen when others disapprove of what you're saying. Listen when others say that you're just wrong. Listen when others tell you that you should make different decisions. It says, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Listen to reproof for me often looks like me having to remind myself when someone is correcting me. Okay, aunt, they're not condemning you. They're not saying they're better than you. They're just saying you're wrong. There's very different things. But to me, and in my insecurity, it often feels like the exact same thing. They're telling me that I'm wrong. It feels like I'm being condemned. No, no, no. They didn't condemn you. They just said you're wrong. And you need to do something different. I have to remind myself of that. I have to remind myself that even if 99% of what they're saying is wrong, and there's 1% of life-giving correction or life-giving truth that is there, then I need to fish for the 1%. I need to fish. I need to, I need to assume, okay, they might not have said it perfectly, right? They might not have gone about it the right way. But even if there's 1% of good that they are saying in this reproof that God is wanting to speak to me, I need to search for it, pray through it, and embrace it if it is actually what God will call me to. I have to remember I'm not being condemned. And I have to remember, well, just because one of the things that they said was wrong does not mean I need to throw everything out. I'll be honest, a lot of Christians believe that someone has to first show themselves trustworthy, friendly, or kind to you before you can be corrected by them. That somebody has to show me that they're worthy to be able to correct me. They got to prove their love to me in such a way that I will be able to actually receive the reproof from them. That's unbiblical. That's not biblical. And oftentimes it's just not even realistic, just practically. It's just not even realistic for us. But we often believe that, oh, if they haven't jumped through the hoops, then I don't have to listen to them or I I don't need to listen to them. Reproof and rebuke is good no matter which mouth is coming from. And you need to learn, I need to learn, we need to learn to have the humility to be able to receive it, whether it's coming from our best friend or our worst enemy. God will speak through whoever. In the Old Testament, God speaks to a donkey. He'll speak through and to whomever he pleases for his glory. He'll use who he chooses. I think part of our problem is that we don't know the difference between a friend and an enemy sometimes. We think friends are those that we feel most comfortable around, those who it's easy for us to be around. But that's not what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 25, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse. Many are the kisses of an enemy. Oftentimes, your real friends are the ones that you won't be comfortable around. Because they'll say things that hurt your feelings, things that you don't want to hear, because they care about you enough to correct you no matter how you feel. Biblically speaking, a friend isn't just the one you most naturally click with. 
A friend is the one that looks out for you, that will tell you what you need to be told. I wonder how many of us have pushed away real friends and embraced those that don't love us enough to correct us. How many of us have made it difficult for those that correct us to relate to us and remain in our lives because we prefer the enemies that will flatter us? One more verse I want to go through in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14. He says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Do you have an abundance of counselors? Or do you have just these one or two people that can tell you what's really going on, but you don't listen to nobody else? Do you have the safety of an abundance of counselors that, that, that many people can speak into your life to encourage you, to challenge you, to rebuke you, to correct you? Do you reverence Christ enough to be able to allow an abundance of people for him to use whoever he so desires to use to challenge and correct you? Do you have the humility and do you reverence Christ enough to submit to one another, knowing that it honors our king when we do so? We do ourselves so much damage when we will not embrace the correction that God is trying to give us through other believers. In the Warrior series that we just concluded, we talked a lot about God and Jesus specifically being a king. The way kings lead primarily is by delegating authority. Right? You think about the kings in the Old Testament because the kings don't work kingdoms and things don't work the same way now as they used to. But you think about someone like King David who ruled over all the tribes, all 12 tribes. He couldn't be there with every tribe to get them to do what they were to do. So he delegates his authority to those whom he trusts so that he can lead his people effectively. Now, if, when the people submitted to those that he delegated over them, he received that as them submitting to him because he's the one that gave out that authority in that way. Kings lead through delegated authority. And God loves to delegate authority. I mean, he, he creates Adam. After he creates, he, he creates the, the world and everything in it, then he creates Adam. And he says, you ought to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. Then he tells Adam to, to work in the garden, to keep it. Right? He gives him authority. He delegates him authority over creation. This is how God works. This is what God loves to do. Now, we know in the church specifically... Scripture In Scripture, he gives pastors, elders, authority in the church. But it's interesting to me how he describes the role and purpose of pastors in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll go verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that word means pastors, uh, same, same Greek word, and teachers. All right, so he said these are lists of different, different roles, different uh, gifts within the church. And he's about to give us one of the big reasons why these roles exist. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he wants the church to be mature. He wants the church to be edified. He wants the church to be united in our faith and in the knowledge of Jesus. So he uses teachers, he uses pastors, he uses these different offices within the church. Not, he doesn't say to do the work of ministry, it says to equip the church for the work of ministry. That the pastor's role is to equip the church to minister. So when we see that it's God's will for us to be a family that submits to one another, 
We see that God has delegated authority to the, over the people of God to the people of God. That it wouldn't just be the pastor or the preacher or whoever is up in front on Sunday mornings that's doing all the leading, but that we would lead each other as we submit to one another. Why? Because the pastor is equipping the congregation that we might lead each other well. This is God's plan. This is his plan to disciple us. He's the king that reigns over us. He delegates his authority. And as we submit to the authority that he establishes, it honors him. We reverence him. We worship him through submitting to one another. Same for me. I'm open to correction just like anyone else. Hopefully the the guys, especially the guys in my life group, know that I can be corrected as well. That all of us need to be willing to receive correction, reproof, and have the humility to sit under and search, prayerfully search through, God, what of this would you have for me to receive and embrace? And when we do not do this, we actually are hindering our own growth. We're actually short-circuiting God's process for maturing us and growing us in our faith. There's a story in Exodus chapter 18 that I think is very relevant and beneficial specifically for our church and some of what's going on with us right now. The context of Exodus chapter 18, at this point in the book of Exodus, God has used Moses to free his people from slavery in Egypt. He's already opened up the Red Sea. They've already crossed. Now, he hasn't, they haven't quite gotten to the point where he gives them the law yet from Mount Sinai, but this is, this is the chapter right before that happens. And there's this story that initially to me seemed odd that it was even placed here because this is an incredibly monumental point in the people of God in the Old Testament. Right? They don't have a king at this time. They don't have any governing structure going on. There's this, there's this group of people that just got set free from slavery. So now everything that God does sets a precedent. Everything that he does sets them up for how they are going to continue. So this is extremely important. At this point, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit him. And this is what occurs in this conversation between Moses and his father-in-law. It says 18.13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw, that all, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So this is Moses, the one God used to bring the ten plagues on Egypt, Moses. The one God spoke to through the burning bush, Moses. The one when God wants to part the Red Sea, he says, Moses, raise up your staff. Right? Red Sea parts, they walk across All right, they're ready to close the Red Sea up. Moses, hold up your staff. Red Sea comes out. That's this Moses that God has used to do all these powerful things. And here his wise father-in-law comes to him and says, okay, I understand God used you to do all that, but you can't handle this. This is too much. There's too much weight on your shoulders just judging the people with everybody coming to you. His father-in-law gives him advice. We jump down to verse 21. Moreover, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. 
But any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. You can't handle this. I know God used you to do all those miracles. Those things were great. But this is too much. You need to find other people that lead under you. You need to delegate your authority to them. Everything that is small enough for them to handle, let them handle it. Don't worry yourself with it. And everything that needs to come to you, let that come to you. And you'll be the one that handles that. And that's how they govern themselves going forward as Moses delegates the authority that God has given him. Moses was focusing on so many other things that he couldn't handle the things that God was primarily wanting him to focus on. Because the next chapter, again, is when they receive the law from God. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. There's thunder. There's lightning so much that God's presence is shaking the mountain. That's when Moses gets the Ten Commandments. It's the very next chapter. The implication here is that the way he was able to actually do the thing that God was calling him to do was he had to stop doing the things that other people can do. And the other people in the congregation had to stop going to him for everything. The other, people, the other people in the people of God had to stop relying on him so much that he might be able to do the primary things that God had called him to do. Why do I bring that story up? The primary reason, if you remember, I need you really with me on this. The primary reason I felt the need to do a standalone sermon on this specific topic is because I believe we as a church, and this is to our credit, and I think it's very good, I actually believe our church is really good at submitting to our pastor, myself, submitting to me out of reverence for Christ. I actually think we're really good at that. And that's really good because many churches you cannot say that about. That said, I think we have a lot of room for growth to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I pointed out this story as an example of why it messes so many things up when the pastor is overly relied on, when this is a situation that could have just been handled with you and your life group or your life group leader or whoever leader, whatever leader is over you at the time. I can't tell you how many times leaders in our church, I'm talking life group leaders, uh, maybe leaders from our, our different teams that help us pull off our Sunday worship services that have said, Aunt, this is an issue, this is one of the things that's going on. We've all tried to tell them what they need to do, but they ain't going to do it till you tell them. So will you come talk to them? I can't tell you how many times I have heard that. So I need to make sure I'm very clear with what I'm saying here. If your inability to submit to one another, if our inability to submit to one another is one of those situations where, okay, we got to call the pastor, we are hindering our whole church. Because there are some specific things that pastors are supposed to be focusing on. Now, if and hopefully for those of you in the room that know me, I actually enjoy meeting with people and walking through difficult stuff. I actually enjoy doing that. It's not that I don't enjoy doing it. It's that the role of those, of whoever is leading, there has to be time to focus on vision, the big picture of, of where our church is going. But if every time someone is, is counseled by those through wisdom, if they don't listen and it has to come from my mouth, then we hinder all of us if we do not submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, I mean, I've already told them that, but they ain't going to listen until you tell them. And they ain't listening to us, but if you tell them, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll listen. And we need some men to step up in a specific area of a church, and I've tried to tell them, but they won't do it unless you challenge them. So can you come to the meeting? So can you come speak at the meeting? 
We actually have leadership structures and systems already in place where we have trained and qualified leaders that are already in place leading in ministry, seeking to follow after the same model that Moses is following here in Exodus chapter 18. But it only works. It only works if we practice submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The system doesn't work. If the leaders are doing everything right, but we as a family don't embrace the system that is there, it doesn't work. We short-circuit our own, what we're able to do in ministry, how we're able to serve others, how we're able to reach out to others. It hinders everything if we refuse to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When I was younger, when my dad used to uh, let us go play with our cousins, uh, he would put us, our aunt and our uncle would be there, and one of, the, one of the, I remember two things very specifically that he would tell us right when he dropped us off. One of those things was, remember who you are, remember whose you are. That's the first thing he would tell us. The second thing, oftentimes, that I remember him telling us is, now, if they have to whoop you, then I'm going to whoop you. And you're going to get whooped twice if they have to whoop you. What was he saying? I'm delegating my authority over you to them because you're with them. And it dishonors me if you dishonor them. It, you disobey me if you disobey them. That's how delegated authority works, right? When God gives somebody authority, when you give it to someone else, then it actually doesn't reverence the one with ultimate authority when you do not submit and follow those who he has put in authority over you. Part of obeying and revering my father was obeying and submitting to those that he delegated that authority to. He's basically saying, you can't be submitting to me if you're not submitting to the authority that I have placed over you. So for us, if we're hard-headed, if we're stubborn, quick to argue and get defensive, whenever someone in the family of God rebukes or reproves us, the problem is that we don't fear and reverence God as we should. It's actually more about your relationship and your view of God, your relationship with God and your view of God than it actually deals with that other person. And that's how Paul can say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because we understand that he has placed his Holy Spirit inside of all believers. That just like with Paul, that he, he leads us by speaking with unity through those that are his, that he has placed around us. If you're the person in your life group that the that the whole group of people indwelled by the Spirit of God is always trying to correct and you're always trying to tell them why they're wrong and why you're always right, you're probably just arrogant. That's probably what's going on. You're probably just arrogant. And your arrogance is preventing you from revering God. What Christians in the room, what would the Christians that you know best say about you if I asked them how you respond when you're corrected? How, you, how, would, how would they say you respond when you're given reproof, when people say they disapprove of your behavior. I'm talking about those who know you best. How would they say you respond when you're venting to them about how you're being mistreated and someone tells you that, you know, you also got some blame in the situation as well? How would they say that you respond to their reproof? Would they say you usually change the subject? That's my go-to move. I'm real good at it. Real slick with the words now. Would they say you usually tell them why they're wrong before you actually do some deep soul searching to, to actually try to figure out if they're actually right? If they've actually found a blind spot for you? I have a challenge for everyone in the room that's in a life group. Ask your life group, maybe this week. When y'all confront me, how do I usually respond? 
how do I respond when y'all confront me? Just ask them. Let them be honest with you. And then sit quietly. Don't argue. Just receive, pray through it, and then talk to them about it later. How do, you, how do I respond when you correct me? Then just sit quietly, listen, hear it. Don't, ask, don't do that thing where you, know, you ask a question, but you're really trying to argue. You're trying to make a statement, but you say it as a question. Y'all know, y'all know that move, right? When you actually ask as a question, well, do you think I really do this? Could it quite be that I, this is what's actually going on? I'm saying listen, hear it, receive it, sit quietly, be slow to speak. Write it down, maybe. Go seek the Lord specifically about everything that was said. Ask that his spirit would show you if any of it is true. I'm talking about if even just 1% of it is true. Ask him to reveal that to you. And in doing all of that, hear me, you are worshiping God. In doing that, you are reverencing God. In doing that, you are honoring God. You're saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust how you have set up this system to lead me, to, to guide me. God, I, I trust you. Back in March, uh, there was a pastor uh, named James White. He came through and he preached a sermon. I think it was, I think it was around the middle, uh, the middle of March. And what well, I don't know if, um, if many of us in here know. So I first heard a sermon from him, I believe it was a little over 13 years ago. I was at a conference. He was the main speaker. The conference changed my life. God used it in my life in so many ways. God used his preaching in my life in so many ways. And kind of from that point on, I kind of kept up with him, listened to some of his sermons online. He's spoken at many conferences, so I've been able to, to check out some of those. And especially in the time when I was in college, when I, I knew God was calling me to be a pastor, he was one of those pastors that I looked up to. He was one of those pastors that's like, yeah, I, I really valued the way that he preached, the way he handled the word. It was one of those things where I was like, yeah, I, I think I want to preach like him. I think I want to preach like him. He was kind of one of my heroes in the ministry, if you would. And the day he came to preach, he was very, afterwards, he was very complimentary of our church. He complimented the way uh, we were doing certain things and how God was using us in, in our church. And it, I didn't even realize it, it would happen. But as he started describing our church, I got a little bit nervous because I was like, oh, is that what he's going to say? Like, this, is, this, is, this was one of my heroes coming up, and I was like, what is he, what, what is he going to say? And, and so, the, I, don't, I don't know if you've been here, the, the compliments hit different when they come from somebody you respect, right? Like, you feel them a little bit different when it's somebody that you honor, somebody that you look up to, you respect their knowledge, you respect their understanding. They hit a little bit different. You feel a little bit different about those words. When it's someone that we look up to or admire, when it's someone that we think does a really good job, maybe they do a good job of the same thing that we do. When it's someone you think you can learn from, you, that you think is wiser than you, you feel those words a little bit different, a little bit heavier in your mind, a little bit heavier in your heart. And that, I looked up to him. I, I really appreciated his preaching. I thought I had a lot to learn from him. And so maybe for you, maybe it's a, it's a parent or a grandparent. Maybe for you, it's someone, maybe they're farther, farther along in your career than you are. Maybe it's someone that you perceive to be a mentor. Maybe you would like for them to mentor you. Maybe it's a celebrity. You know, somebody you get really excited about if they followed you on Twitter. Who do we honor? Who do we reverence? Whose words ring a little bit louder than everyone else? Because we all revere somebody. We all reverence someone. There's someone that all of us look up to. And as Christians, we make it our confession that we reverence Christ that we understand that he is greater and better than anyone else, that he is the all-wise one, that he knows more than we know, that he is, he is all 
knowing. As Christians, we believe that he is worthy of reverencing. That's part of being a follower of his, that he has proven himself to be worthy of our reverence, that he has proven himself of being the one that we worship. One of the things that I think about a lot, that I like to think about about our God, is that he created an estimated, what scientists would say, a hundred million galaxies. A hundred million galaxies. Scientists estimate about a hundred million stars in all those 100 million galaxies. And yet he also knows every detail of your life, the number of hairs on your head, on my head. He, he knows all the intricacies of a single cell organism, all the atoms, every bit of it that he is able to, to zoom out and see big. He's able to zoom in and see small. And on top of that, he came and put flesh on himself. So he was still God. He was still God, creator of the universe, came to earth and became a man as a baby. And Colossians says that in him all things hold together. So while he's sitting in the manger, because there's no room for him in the inn, his physical body doesn't have the strength for him to sit up or stand up on his own, but he's still holding the universe together inside of this flesh that he has wrapped himself in. The same one who traded in all the comforts and all the pleasure of heaven for this broken world, that he, 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 he rid himself of for a moment the, the songs of praises from the angels to be ridiculed, to be insulted by men. He left the right hand of the Father and traded in the throne for the cross. And in that very moment, while they are beating him, while they are nailing him to the cross, he practices the level of power and strength and restraint to continue to provide the oxygen needed for life to those who were using it for his death. This one, this Jesus, this Christ is worthy of reverence. He is the one that is worthy of, of submitting to, of honoring above all others. His, his wisdom, his power, his, his ability, his nearness. And he died there on that cross, holding all things together, even while he is being crucified, trading in the highest status of, of, at the right hand of the Father in heaven for the most shameful death in the known world at that time, crucifixion on a cross, that we might know him. Oh, he's proven his goodness. He's proven his worthiness. He's proven that there is no one else worthy of reverencing and fearing above him. This is the Christ that we revere, that we worship. And the humility that we walk in and that we practice to submit to one another, it honors him. It's a way of worshiping him because we trust his system. We trust in his design. He is worthy of our worship, of our reverence. And there is no one more worthy. So in a few minutes here, we're going to approach the communion table. Christ said to do this in remembrance of him. I want to ask us to do it remembering this is why he's worthy right here. This is why he's worthy of reverencing. This is why we honor him. This is why we trust him. This is how we know and we are fully convinced that what he says goes and wherever he delegates his authority, I reverence him by submitting myself to that. I'll pray for us and we'll open the communion table. Father, we're thankful today for your word, for your wisdom. Father, I want to lift up anyone in here who just has been struck with so much pride 
with so much arrogance, Father, that we just don't like to listen to anyone. Or maybe it's not that we're, we're arrogant. Maybe we just want what we want. We know, maybe we understand that other people are telling us things that are right, but we just don't want to do what's right because we want what we want when we want it. Father, would you break us? Would you be the potter and allow us to be the clay? Would you work on us, use whatever you have to use, Father? And if you send if you impress upon any of us to go and correct or reprove any one of us in this room, would you grant us in that moment, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the humility to listen, to learn, to find safety in an abundance of counselors? Father, grant us the humility we need. And maybe even above that, help us to see you as worthy of reverence. Help us to see you as worthy of worship. Help us to see you as the one that we, we desire to have your words ring louder in our hearts, louder in our minds than anyone else. God, help us to see how, how putting ourselves even above you, how it's so broken, how it doesn't lead us to health and wholeness and maturity in you. Fathers in Christ's name I pray. Amen.